This is Coda Radio, episode 97, for April 14th, 2014. Welcome to Coder Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and related technologies. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Linux Academy, and Profiler. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our excellent host on the East Coast, Mr. Michael Dominic. Hey there, Michael. Good morning, Christoph. Hello, sir. Hello. You sound uh, like you're from a new location today. Are you not in the office anymore? I'm home today. Mm, yes. Well, a little behind the scenes is because we're recording two episodes today. I'm pretty two, excited. What, what, we got two pretty what? good episodes. Well, you didn't know? You didn't know? Uh, I, I can't believe that. That's a travesty. My heart bleeds. My heart bleeds. Oh, shoot. I guess somebody should have told you because, uh, yeah, you had, to, you had to do two shows today, my, my, man. I'm sorry about that. Oh. <laughs> uh, and today's kind of a big day for us at the Fisher household, um, because today is my son Dylan's uh, fifth birthday, so happy birthday to my buddy Dylan, who yes. uh, who woke us up uh, woke us up this morning so that way we could do gifts, because we had to do gifts first thing this morning, of course. And Absolutely. he, so, <laughs> so there we are, you know, sleeping, doing our thing, and uh, we hear like, it's a little bit of noise outside, and Dylan very cleverly sends his sister in first because he doesn't want to be the one to get in trouble. So he sends his sister in and says, "Hey, Dylan's five now. Can we do his presents?" And he totally was standing outside the door, prompting her to go in and do it. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, it's a clever man, clever man. So, uh, uh, and you know, uh, uh, the other thing is the other thing that's kind of fun is I'm still playing with a brand new. I don't want to call it a toy. It's kind of a professional level rig. But uh, I got that new Intel NUC, and uh, I got to tell you, I think it could be a good dev machine. Now, I know people watching will be like, Chris is crazy. Chris is crazy. But uh, I, I got it with the i5, and each core runs at like, um, when they're all maxed out, they'll run at 2.3 gigahertz or individually at 2.6 gigahertz. And it, it doesn't get that loud. It's, it's, it's louder than, like, so, you know, than a silent machine, but it doesn't get that loud. And it's pretty powerful and pretty, pretty peppy. So I, and, you know, all in. Like five hundred and sixty bucks for eight gigs of okay. RAM. Yeah, a, a decent SSD, like two hundred and forty gigabytes. Um, right. And I think it was eight gigs. I think you can go up to sixteen gigs of RAM. It's essentially, it's essentially a, a Mac Mini, only uh, an Intel version of it. So, like, if you've, you know, if you've been in that area where, because I know we've talked about this on the show before, we were kind of like, gosh, I'd really, you know, the Mini has a, has some purposes that would be very useful for development, especially if you just need to do a little bit of iOS development. Now, this isn't going to help you do iOS development, but if you need that category or that range of computer, this is a pretty good option, I thought. Um, we gave the full review in last night's Linux Action Show, but I walked away, like, kind of crazy impressed. Now you got to go get one, Mr. Dominic, that's all. I'm, I'm thinking about it now. What are you running on this bad boy? Well, this one is running Arch Linux, but you could run... You know, you could run, I mean, it's it's all Intel parts. You, not only could you run, you could run any Linux, but you could also just run Windows on it, too. Okay. You might be able to Hackintosh it. I don't know. That'd be crazy. No, I'd probably run Unity on it. Yeah, you could. Yeah, the 1404 is shaping up. I, uh, I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll leave it at that. 
But because uh, I'm going to review that next Sunday. Um, what? So, what? Wait, wait, wait! You're going to review it really when I'm gone? You waited. You know the great thing is though it's on demand. Yeah, but everybody else is going to hear it first, and yeah. I'm not going to be the first one to send you a nasty email. Well, that's true. That's true. If you want. Um, Although, wait a minute. Do I really need to hear the review to send you a nasty no. email about no, it? That's no, that's what I was just going to say. If you want, no. you can just send me a nasty email. That's fine. Right, hang on. Let me let me open uh, let me open <laughs> Word here, because that's the only way I could write you a nasty email. Uh, so I, I have a few th- I have a few other things we can catch up on, but uh, in this week's episode, we wanted to talk about uh, probably the big topic is this uh, heart bleed vulnerability and um there's a lot of angles i think we can come at this one from the developer's perspective i think that's where we want to start and then i also want to talk about um you know this existed for two years supposedly out in the open did the open source development model where you have quote-unquote thousands of eyes always auditing code did it fall down in this scenario why did we have something of this level at this scale um last for two years and then remember we just recently we just fixed the go to fail which was also in an open library uh so i want to talk about that later on in the show whoa oh did you just spill your cereal over there i knocked over a fork accidentally as i was trying to wipe off my screen uh wait what (laughs) yes this sounds like a whole series of events just happened over there. I, I don't like dirty screens. Yeah, I hear you on that. I, I, yeah. <clears throat> All right. Well, uh, before we get to our first bit of feedback, uh, which, which is our first one is from Nick, who's been listening since episode five. That's awesome, Nick. Uh, I want to tell you about our first sponsor this week, and that is Digital Ocean. You have to check out DigitalOcean.com because it is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way to spin up a cloud server. Users can create a cloud server in 55 seconds, and pricing plans start at only $5 per month. That gets you 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. And Digital Digital Ocean has data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, and Amsterdam. But I think one of the best things about DigitalOcean is their interface is so simple and so intuitive. And the best part is, like, when you want to take it to that next level, DigitalOcean has a very simple API. I've been told it's beautiful that you can write to and you can then replicate the functions on a much larger, more automated scale. But here's the best part. We're going to get you a $10 credit, so that way you can try out that $5 droplet for two months for absolutely free. And then you can really see why Mike runs it for his production infrastructure, why I've been using it as I grow the Jupiter Broadcasting Network, and especially it has been so critical as I have moved between two locations, as I'm working between two studios right now. Uh, between two studios, that sounds like a show title. Uh, DigitalOcean has been pivotal in the fact that I have this now I have this VPS that no matter what IP I'm coming from, no matter what firewall I'm behind, no, or if I'm just on my mobile, I know that I can connect to my DigitalOcean droplet. And the best part is, is there's always performance there because they have these SSD hard drives, so you have great I.O. They have Tier 1 bandwidth, so your transfer rates are absolutely awesome. They're imaging and Deployment system is super quick, so even when you're at the creation process of creating a brand new server, it flies. And then it's all on top of KVM, which as a Linux head, I just absolutely love. So go over to DigitalOcean.com and use the promo code, and remember, this will get you a $10 credit, so you can try out that $5 droplet for two months. Use the promo code CODERAPRIL. Coder April will get you a, fi- oh, a $10 credit, and then you can try out that $5 rig for two months. DigitalOcean.com, and a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Coder Radio program. Okay, Mr. Dominic, our first email this week comes in from Nick, like I had mentioned, and Nick has been uh, listening since episode five. I wonder, like, did he just like, ah, I don't need to go back. I don't need to go back. Uh, he says, I've been a developer for many years. And now, 
Mike, I know we get these kinds of emails, but I have a sense that Nick is looking for more than just the stock answer since he's been listening since episode five. But So bear with it. Here we go. He says, I've been a developer for many years. I found something I wanted to build and have decided it should be a web front end as well as an Android app. It will hold data. However, that data will be holding, it holding is not sensitive data. I would like to develop an API further down the road and make it customizable as possible when it comes to getting the user's data. My question is this. How should I go about choosing the language, the framework, the database, etc. to build this? I guess my issue is that I know a wide variety of possible languages and I'm not sure the best route to go. Ruby, Python, Java, ASP.NET, PHP, etc. I was originally going to write this in a ROR, but I started looking at play for Java and started down that path. Path, and then I decided to try some PHP. So there's so many paths I could take. Thanks for any light you could shed on this. And thanks for the great show, Nick. Now, I know we get this question a lot, like, which language should I use? But I feel like Nick's got a different take on here because, you know, he's been a developer for many years. He's been listening to the show since episode five. Uh, do you just, like, if it was you in this position, uh, Mike, what would you do? Well, I'd obviously do it on Rails. I mean, the only way to be a cool <laughs> kid is to do this on Rails with MongoDB. I'm sold. Yeah, so that's the answer. No, um, yeah, I do this a lot. Basically, I kind of weigh, like, what would be best for the particular application, blah, 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 that kind of normal stupid stock answer. But also, you know, is is there a legitimate reason to do one or the other? And which one, more importantly, can I get done fast enough and efficiently enough? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Regardless of the stock application, right? So if you've never done Dave Rails in your life, um, there's an inherent disadvantage in, say, Rails. If you've never done Node in your life, there's an inherent disadvantage in Node right there, right? Yeah. So I would say, depending on how important this thing is to you, um, you know, trying something new on a, on a first-party internal project is fine, but I would not not risk it on a employer or, or client project. Or oh, sure. Yeah. I think do. this is for yeah. himself. I'm pretty sure this is... Yeah, if it's for yourself, you yeah. kind of have a lot of freedom, right? And that, that, that makes it almost harder to deal with because it's easier. I think that's his problem. Um, and I, I, like, uh, I like the idea of, of sort of consider if it's a passion project, I'll, I, I hate to advise just get it done as fast as possible, but I feel like for me and my personality... That would, at least if I could build um, a first iteration in whatever method I wanted, I would probably feel like I had all these options to, all these ideas to redo it anyways once I kind of got it to, you know, uh, uh, some sort of finished state. A lot of times I come up with an idea and my first iteration is solid, but like as soon as I have it done, I notice all of the little things that could be done better would make things a little more efficient. And so then I want to kind of go back and refactor it anyways. Yeah. Uh, that's something to consider is just build it as fast as possible to get what you want, make that minimum viable product, and then um, kick it around and then see if you want to just keep building on top of that or uh, um, or, or just start over. And, you know, one thing that uh, I, I don't know if this fits for, for his situation, but one thing we've heard a lot from um, folks is one of the reasons they like to develop open source is because it forces them to kind of up their game a little bit because they know other people could be looking at it. And so that's something to consider, too. I don't know what your options are there. All right. Next email comes in from Karim. He says, uh, hey, Mike and Chris, or she, I suppose, but I think Karim, I think he's written before. I think it's a he. I found a new opportunity in the Texas area with much higher pay than what I currently make in Tennessee and decided to go for it. I turned down, I turned in my notice last week. I've since had a few conversations with the higher-ups at my current job. The conversations have been geared towards why I wanted to leave and what could be done to make me change my mind. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've been here. 
He goes on to say, uh, the conversations have been very difficult and quite awkward. I've heard more praise about my contributions and value to the company in the past couple of days than what I have been told in the prior entire year. But I stood my ground. My mind is made up. The money is good, and I can use some change of surroundings. I'm moving from a permanent salary technical lead role to a temporary contract as a, as a software developer for a few months. But I'm already discussing the next potential full-time permanent opportunity with another company so that I'll have something lined up once, the contract, once that contract gig runs its course. Thanks for the great show, Karim. I think he wanted to share the success story. So, Mike, have you ever been in the position where um, maybe you fail to properly communicate like how bad you're getting burned out or how bad you're getting stressed out. And so by the time you quit, there's almost no change in your mind. Yeah. So usually if I'm leaving a project, um, I kind of avoid these situations. I, <laughs> to me, it's kind of like a breakup, right? You need to be quick, fast, and just very direct. <laughs> Um, I, I, you know, this, this kind of thing happens. I don't, for me, that conversation would make me total, really, really uncomfortable, right? Because let's say they gave you more money. Well, then eventually you're still going to get, the money is going to make you happy for a little while, but then you're going to get burned out again. Right. So then when you go back to have that same conversation, they're like, what do you want more money again? Yeah. And I yeah. think too, there's, there is a lot of people out there who, uh, money is absolutely important for a lot of things, but it's not the primary thing that gets them out of bed and gets yeah. them into that job every day. So, you know, there's only a certain amount, everybody can take more money, but there's only a certain amount where it's like, I just, my, my health or my stress yeah. or whatever is more important. Um, and you know, uh, I'll tell you something that I, I don't recommend people do. I think this was probably not one of my better moments, but um, I, when I was a contractor for a company, so I was an employee of a company who then would send me out to like their their clients that needed like rescuing or their clients that were very hands on and needed a lot of you know white glove attention. That was my role. So that was a very stressful, very high expectations. You know, never knowing at any moment when something was going to blow up and my phone was going to ring, and that after years and years not only did it wear me down but it started to make me bitter towards the company and so i you know when i decided it was time to go um i i opted for a job uh, or was a contract that paid a lot like he's kind of doing right now i opted for a contract that uh paid me a lot less uh significantly less but it was so worth it for me to um get out of that situation and uh when i quit I, did, I was so done, I only gave them a week's notice, and I, I refused to give two weeks. And now it's a, here in Washington State, that's perfectly legal. I could walk day one, and I'm within the law of Washington State. I could just, just say, same, same in Jersey, you could just peace out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I was all within my legal you know, parameters, but I, I, I felt like it wasn't my best moment because yeah. I, I, part of it was I knew that <clears throat> if I gave them two weeks, it would be a grueling, stretched out two weeks where every little thing would be, you know, I, they would just grind me into the ground to, to document and do all this stuff. And it would all be like all this last minute stuff that would have been arranged that I would have been expected to carry through on. And I just, I wasn't, I, I was so burned out that I knew I wasn't going to be able to do those things to the level they wanted. And I, I had pretty good documentation already, so it wasn't a big deal. Um, uh, but uh, it wasn't, you know, it was, I was kind of in the same situation as Corinne there. I was like, okay, uh, here's my week. And then we had that, we had that round of awkward conversations because the nature of my job is I had these very high-profile clients, but I knew too deep down that I was not delivering the level of service those clients needed, and so that was also very stressful because uh, I was just too overworked. 
Um, and, and so when, when I made that, com- when I started having those conversations with them, you know, I, I very quickly had to get to that position where I had to get awkward and say, really, there's, you know, there, the amount of money it would take for you to keep me, you can't afford, and I would need about a month of vacation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not going to happen. So I, I know what Krim's going through. I know that can be very, very um, uncomfortable, I think is a good way to put it. But the, here's the good side, and you already know this. It's temporary. It's a problem that's pretty much going to solve itself um, in about a week. So you're set there. But it takes me back to the good old days when... Oh, yes. I just had it. I think I just... You know, I, 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 I should have taken more vacations or something. I don't know what I could have done. I wish I, wish I still understood my own burnout process better because well, I, I think i think we've talked about this a few times i know way back in the beginning but you know in it for the it people the only feedback loop is a negative feedback loop right right like when no it's one, working nobody talks to you right. no no one you know requests a skype call to talk about how ahead of schedule you are <laughs> no no one oh, wants good. a hey no you're doing a great a, job just wanted to call and say i really appreciate how well the servers are running how great those code yeah. that code's compiling <laughs> And it's kind of compounded by the fact that all our estimates are crap, and there's often right. moving parts. And- yeah, and then yeah, exactly. Yep, and then things change from out from underneath you constantly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, uh, this actually brings us to uh, our next sponsor, Derwiz. Uh, they have a new tool called Profiler that they just updated, and this is one of the tools that probably would have significantly helped reduce my burnout because it can help eliminate those repetitive tasks that actually the staff are completely capable and probably more qualified to handle themselves anyways, or their manager or your HR department. So I want to tell you about Profiler. Profiler is a web-based LDAP directory administration tool. Now, I I want to back up because what that means is it works with Active Directory or your own LDAP directory because Profiler has the capability, once you install it, and install it takes like five minutes. And what's great about Profiler is it really scales to any enterprise size because they've got uh, it works with IIS if you have a Windows server it works with Apache if you got a Linux box and it also comes in with its own tiny built-in web server if you just want to run that and bypass having to set up a web server if you don't already have something built but what's really neat is once it's set up it brings you through an installation wizard and you can actually download the schema of your LDAP directory or of your Active Directory and what that lets you do is have some customizations that are unique to your schema. If you've extended Active Directory for some sort of SharePoint functionality or something like that, Profiler fully supports that. This is this this tool Profiler is essentially it's user self-service. You can set it up with permissions to allow users to modify their own objects but only the attributes you allow like their last name or maybe a phone number or setting up a vacation email forwarder and then profiler can automatically set up the exchange forwarder in microsoft exchange for you you can also select certain users to be administrators you can say okay you're a profile administrator maybe you're in hr you're allowed to change last names you're allowed to update the employment status directly and think about this for your workflow too right uh i mean right now the way it used to work in my good old burnout days is a change request would come down to it uh, after hr had uh, finished up firing somebody well i mean just this is the way bureaucracies work sometimes literally that would be five days after the person was let go and their account was available for login that entire time it's insanity and this was at a bank okay so this is these kinds of tools where where you could have as just part of the workflow process when hr is doing the paperwork one of the things they do is they go to profiler maybe you have it just linked on your internet page for them and they can just go in there and disable the account or change attributes or maybe set up email forwarding to their manager things like that now of course it runs on windows 
Windows or Linux, like I said. So you can, if no matter what your backend infrastructure is, you're good to go. It's great for managers to be able to change groups. Maybe you want to add shared NTFS permissions, so you have di different department groups to set your file permissions. There's an easy template system that allows you to add your own fields and rearrange depends in, depending on your directory. It supports syslogging, so there's an audit of all the changes that are made. You can also set up email notifications to managers. And it's only build per install. And here's the great part. If you use our promo code CODER4, when you go over to derwiz.com slash profiler, give it a download, and use the promo code CODER4, and you'll get an extended evaluation. Now, this is the kind of software you love, because Directory Wizards focuses on tight, efficient code. It doesn't do anything more than it needs to. It's very focused. It's very efficient. And it's, it all makes sense. Uh, I've seen the directory structure for how Profiler sets up on your system. And you can go into that directory, and it will all make sense what all those files do, how it all works. It's very awesome. And it's the best kind of thing you want. It's exactly what you want from enterprise software, something extremely fast, extremely scalable, and something very straightforward that isn't going to take a lot of your maintenance time. So go over to derwiz.com, download a free demo of Profiler, and use that promo code CODER4 to get an extended 30-day evaluation. And a big thank you to Directory Wizards, and congratulations, guys, on the new release of Profiler. All right, Mr. Dominic, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the big hoopla that's sort of um, not just smacking developers in the face this week, but smacking pretty much uh, the entire security community, the open source community, a lot of Linux advocates. Uh, Alan Jude's all upset about it. <laughs> There's a lot oh, of yeah. people talking about Heartbleed. And uh, um, MP Kasanki, I don't even know how you say this one, he wrote into the Coder Radio subreddit at coderadio.reddit.com. He says, the Heartbeat, the Heartbleed bug is probably one of the most embarrassing security bugs in the history of the internet. Chris already covered this topic quite extensively in TechSnap from a sysadmin perspective. Maybe it's worth investigating this from a software developer slash tester point of view. How can software development methods how can Oh, how could software development methods prevent these kinds of issues? And what are your thoughts? So, Mike, I don't know where you want to start on this issue. Uh, first, I guess what I want to start is do you think it's a big deal and do you think it came down to a software development method that was sort of what caused this thing to be introduced, this this bug? What do you think? Yeah, so first off, I think it's a huge deal. Uh, now, I, I I wouldn't want to play the why did this happen game, because I think, like anything else, software is complex, and you're not going to get one reason. It might be easy to blame a development methodology that's no longer popular, which I see some people are doing. Um, oh, yes, I was going to ask you about that. That I feel like that's just making yourself feel better, and it, it, it's almost not important why you know, this happened, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing for me that was really shaking about Heartbleed was not that it, you know, existed, but that it existed in OpenSSL in particular, in one of the largest, most widely used, and presumably widely examined open source projects. You would think, although... Literally in the world, right? I mean, OpenSSL, pretty much everywhere. I, 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 well, I, I agree that it's used almost everywhere. I don't know if I agree that it's been examined by so many people. It kind of sounds like maybe it hasn't. Uh, I mean, if something existed like this for two years, and also, by the way, this is just what I've extracted from my understanding of how Alan explained it on TechSnap. This is the part that I'm a little more shaky on. But uh, I guess not only was there this initial heartbeat bug where I, I think it essentially it was accepting the heartbeat packet. It was the, it, the packet would declare I am, you know, X bytes in length, and the OpenSSL right. library would just accept that and then commit it to memory regardless of the actual length. So that was one bug. I think I have that right. The second bug, though, that seems a little bit more 
like maybe should have been caught, is it also sort of bypassed certain operating systems' memory allocation uh, uh, built-in tools. It sort of did its own memory allocation trickery in maybe the name of performance, like a 5% performance gain, where it, it would make the operating system think it was releasing something or doing something, and so in reality it wasn't, and they sort of did this to make it faster, and nobody really... I mean, some people on some mailing list... You know, like the OpenBSD developers and some other folks who raised a hand and said, this isn't a good idea. But for the most part, like, you know, the entire industry just let it pass. And that, so it seems like a double whammy to me. Yeah, I mean, the chat room's going kind of crazy about, you know, the memory allocator. And that was the, the root of the issue. So they kind of did their own thing, right? But I'd even, I'd even caution, again, it's, it's really easy to beat up the OpenSSL guys after the fact and say, you shouldn't have done your own memory allocator. You know, that was the root cause. When before the fact, everybody was so thrilled at how fast OpenSSL was because of their custom code. Ah. To me, the bigger issue is there, there are always going to be problems like this. Um, I think this kind of airs one of our, especially open source developers, and I don't just mean you know, folks who are actually developing OpenSSL. I mean f- folks like me, right, who are using open source to develop maybe proprietary solutions or are doing kind of open core type development. Right. It kind of brings into question something that we've two things really one i think it airs our dirty laundry we may all use open source but the vast majority of us don't actually look at what we're using Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we try to treat it as a black box and just use it yes uh the second thing and this has been many a rails developer on the ass right Uh, the second thing would be we don't seem to um really understand the open source things we're using and I, I mean that in a very, you know, I beat up on PHP people a lot. And I, I would say even I've been guilty of this, where if there's an open source library that just does something, sometimes you don't look at how it does it. Right, yeah. Well, just especially... It, import it. Well, that's what I was wondering, if it's, if it's almost like confirmation bias, in a sense, where people are like, well, so many people are using this. Exactly. That clearly so many pe- other people must be looking at it, right? Well, it, just think about it. The major security flaws that have come up in the last few years have mostly been proprietary. So we've always had this kind of, well, you know, because only five guys were looking at the code, uh, obviously that could never happen in open source. Right. That has now been proven false. Right. right. It's factually not true. So I, I think it, this should, but I doubt it will, cause a lot of people to either look closer at the libraries they're using. And I understand it's not reasonable to say study every line of code. Um, but also, don't assume that because it's on GitHub and not from, let's say, NuGet or Microsoft or wherever, that it's necessarily done correctly. There is plenty of crap on GitHub. I know I wrote some of it. <laughs> so well, I'm just saying, like, it, it, the fact that it's open doesn't make it good. Yeah, I I feel like um, uh, closed or open doesn't fundamentally change the possibility of bugs being introduced. What I am, what I kind of take issue with is, so I think it's the maybe I'll let me, I should finish the thought because the obvious conclusion to that statement that I just made is, but it does mean it's more likely there is a higher likelihood of it being audited by a third party and it being publicly disclosed in a responsible manner and in almost all cases of major open source vulnerabilities the the respond time to patch to have a fix issued it it, it is like warp speed compared to you know patch tuesday kind of 
or Java's, you know, irregular release schedules, right? I mean, it's much more um, responsive. So in some sense, even if you don't have more people auditing it like we would like, you have more transparency in the issues when they do come up, and you have faster resolution time, and and you also still do have the potential for third-party auditing where it's closed-source software. That's all a black box. You don't even know when there's a disclosure until there a problem so, until they tell you. But I think there's another distinction to be made that you're kind of glossing. It's one thing to look at, you know, one of my little utility libraries, right, like easy snippets or empty networking, you know, and if you know Objective-C, you can probably read through them and get more or less what's going on. Um, it's a whole other thing to look at something huge like OpenSSL or the kernel and working with low-level memory allocators. There are just fewer people who can do that. And unfortunately, I would argue that the mistakes you would make at that level, if not caught, are devastating. Yeah, I see. Now, Alan brings up a great point in the chat room. He says, "What it sounds like this here's a, here's how process could have prevented something like this on something that's just as critical as OpenSSL." He says, "What they need to do is do what the OpenZFS devs do. When someone wants to commit a patch, it must be signed and reviewed by two other domain experts to avoid any change corrupting a bunch of people's ZFS pools. Uh, any change actually has to go through two other people that know the subsystem being changed and make sure it's all good before it goes into the dev tree. Then it gets a lot of testing before it goes li- goes live." Goats live uh, before it goes live, and uh, I, I, I kind of when you when you think about that, it seems pretty obvious that the open SSL and really all really super critical infrastructure security libraries and whatnot should uh, do a process like that. Here's um, here's what I don't like is I, I don't like that open source is kind of taking a beating over this. I, I, I do agree there's a bit of a reality call that we can't just have right. blind faith because it's under a BSD or GPL or Apache license. Like, I'm, I'm on board with that. What I'm not so on board with is that, uh, uh, the, you know, I, I read an article on last that basically said that, you know, this is what open source's fundamental problem is, is that they have limited time, limited money, limited resources, and the NSA has tons of money, tons of time, and tons of resources. Well, that's not fair. I mean, proprietary software is resource limited, too. That's... Right. Yeah, exactly. I know. That's why I don't... And, you know, uh, there was an article, uh, let's see, it was over on uh, John R. Levine, uh, his blog. It was actually a pretty good post, and I liked his title. He said, open source software is the worst kind except for all the others. <laughs> and uh, he kind of just makes the point that, you know, humans are making this software, and the problem is, is that these humans are dramatically under-resourced and underfunded. And uh, I, I, I felt like I wanted to take this and go, like, what the hell, Google, Amazon? Like, step up. Instagram, you just got billions. You guys are all using these open SSL libraries. And, and yet, these guys are saying, hey, you know, we'd like to have maybe six people work full-time on this, but we don't right now. And that would be really great if we had some more money so we could do that. And meanwhile, all these companies are getting rich off of their infrastructure code, and they don't toss them some bones? I just... Uh, I... I just feel like if they have billions to spend, they could they could at least uh, you know set up some sort of industry fund, or they could uh, you know hire a few of the developers like Intel and Red Hat do for some of the Linux subsystems they depend on. This seems like too critical. From a, it seems too critical from a national security standpoint. It seems too critical from a, from a, an economy standpoint, uh, from from consumer standpoint. And yet, everybody who's making a dime and everybody's using it can't be bothered to kick them a few bucks. So what are you suggesting, some sort of new open source license where if you make so much revenue off the library, you have to contribute X back? 
Oh, wow. That'd be interesting. I don't think anybody would use it if you did that. I don't think you're going to change the behavior that you don't like without using force, right? Without making compulsory. And I I would be, I think that's a little um, short-sighted, right? So, for instance, in many of the circles I work in, the GPL just doesn't exist. Um, In fact, people will take worse implementations because they're BSD or proprietary. So if you want to compel people to share back, you're not going to for the vast majority of these type of companies, right? You're going to compel them not to use it. Hmm. So, I mean, Alan's idea and what they do in CFS makes a lot of sense, but I would question your ability to find and get those qualified people for issues like this to actually do it. Well, and then it comes back to that resources issue too, right? They're saying, hey, can we just have six people? Can we just have six full-time people? And, you know, that for something as critical, that doesn't seem like that, that they're asking that much. But if you can't, you know, if you can't do it, then yeah. it's going to be hard to do code review. I would also that Heartbleed was weird because it was a huge problem. But because it was everybody's problem, there was no accountability. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I, I also, I, I don't really understand... Uh, I have missed who is behind the heart the heartbleedbugs.com site heartbleed.com uh it's it's a private registration and um a big grant of money just went to Glenn Greenwald's journalism foundation around this whole thing and I don't I'm not clear on the connections here so there's there it's it's good in the sense that it's getting the word out but We've never quite seen a security vulnerability publicized like this. Now, maybe it's because we never really quite have seen one quite at this scale, perhaps. Well, I think Heartbleed hit. So it's different, right? The last big thing we had like this wasn't even that similar. It was one of the more recent Rails exploits. That only hits you if you're using Rails. Heartbleed, more likely than not, if you were developing on open source for web services, hit you. Right, unless you were somehow not using open SSL or just weren't using SSL. But assuming you were using SSL and were an open source developer, the odds are you were affected by this. Yeah, yeah, no kidding, right? So it's a much wider net. And, you know, frankly, fingertip tech was affected. We fixed it. Mm-hmm. Um, Bank of America, also, right, like Chase Bank. Like these, it, in a way, that makes it a little easier because, you know, I'll give you an example. When, when the big Rails exploit happened last year, the big, big one, you know, the, the one I'm thinking of, the um, arbitrary SQL thing? Sure. I had some difficult conversations with clients because the rest of their infrastructure was in, like, Java or PHP. And so I'm the one guy whose stuff was affected. That's a tough meeting. Yeah, no kidding. Now, when everybody in the room is just as screwed as you, there's not this finger-pointing, there's this, okay, are you good or are you good? It's a much different conversation. Now, I'm not advocating for bigger and more wide security vulnerabilities, which kind of sounds like I am. But I'm just saying the response I've seen is weird because I'll be honest, when, when the Rails thing happened that first time, uh, that was a nightmare. I mean, this was this was bad and certainly, you know, had to move quickly. But it wasn't as crazy as that because there was less finger pointing. I, I I see what you're saying because if you're the guy that implemented the thing that now has the vulnerability, it's kind of your bad. Like they, they see right. it as your fault. Yeah. I I I, I guess so. Zane in the chat room says the site was put together by the original team who founded a uh, Kota Comic Con, and so that average people can understand, it, which makes sense. I mean, right. it's a good site and it is very helpful. I just I I was I, I don't think I've ever seen a response to a vulnerability like this on the internet. I think this is so, a new era of response. 
so Chris, let me ask you because I, I think you had a point that I derailed you. Were you trying to say that there might be a connection between these uh, government re- um, revelations that came out recently and the attention this vulnerability is getting? Is that the point you wanted to make? Well, I think that could be the case. Is I think there is like this new sort of hypersensitivity. And, uh, I'm not, see, I'm not sure if I buy that. I mean, the fact that your bank account, you know, I mean, I, I say that in quotes. That it's weird, right? Because at the end of the day, it was 64, you know, it, it was arbitrary data, and they had to get pretty lucky. But it could have been going on for years. So it's all – to me, the real question is how long was this going on? That, that would be what I want to know. You mean how long were they taking advantage of it? I mean, if I'm, you know, president of Bank of America, for example, I want to know, and I actually don't think they were affected, but Chase Bank, let's say, how long have people been able to do this on my uh, online banking portal, and how much data was actually breached? Because my assumption, and I'm wondering from an IT perspective what you would do, I would assume everything is compromised. Yeah, I I mean, the problems with this particular kind of uh, bug is that there's essentially no logging you're really going to do unless you're logging you, right. At your network level, because this is just a heartbeat. It's a heartbeat network packet. It goes there. It doesn't really trigger any particular logging. It doesn't, you know, it's not anything unusual. Um, so you'd have to actually be looking for the malformed packets themselves, I would assume. So it is, it's very hard. The only, so here's your corollary. You can say, okay, so if we're using X Linux distribution to host this site, um, well, what version of the library do they have and when was it introduced? Some are so old, they don't even have this feature. But most, because it's two years old, most of the stable distros, most of the big name distros, uh, like CentOS and Red Hat and uh, SUSE Enterprise, they have this library and they've had it for quite a while. Because they, you know, probably froze a couple of years ago. They grabbed it and they put it, pushed it out. How do you know how much data has been accessed? You don't. There's I think you just you just have to assume 100%. How can you responsibly not assume all the data? And I think that's why so many people are like, change your passwords, change your passwords, change your passwords. Um, you know. I mean, how would you prevent this? I mean, I, I like Alan's code review thing. I think that's not going to work in a lot of cases where... You really need the top developers who are super specialized to catch some of this stuff. Um, and what what if this was the Linux kernel? See, this is one of those things that that uh, scares me the most because it seems almost impossible to sort of preemptively defend against because right. of this this double whammy of the way it was handling handling mem- memory and just the simple heartbleed packet nature. I mean. Yeah. Heartbeat. I mean, that's. I just like this is one of those problems where I think the best of the best could have been fooled and been unable to prevent it. I, I mean, I, you know, they've been getting a lot of crap, but obviously the open SSL team that, you know, those aren't little league players here, right? Those are big league Yankee stadium kind of guys. Um, if it happened to them, it can happen to anybody. Well, and what I wanted to ask you was, you know, uh, the banking industry sort of just assumes they're going to have X amount of loss to fraud and they just cover it. Right. And like, so the right. credit, they're like the credit card system is sort of famously in the U.S. known for not having the chip and pin system that prevents some of this fraud. And the banks have just decided, well, it's just easier for us just to, you know, uh, eat it when it happens. And so there's sort of a essentially a, a bit of failure built into the banking system, assumed failure. And I wonder if uh, if we're really just not going to have as long as, you know, as long as we have all this human generated code, I think we're just going to have to accept that there's a bit of failure built into the system. It's like the banking industry in a way. 
Uh, and I don't think people are too comfortable with that because the ramifications are perhaps a lot, you know, it's a lot larger of a scale because there's an entire economies built on top of this stuff. I mean, you know, this could have been a huge problem for a company like Amazon. Imagine if somebody was able to poach tens of thousands, if not millions of Amazon logins. It could have been devastating for them. Well, I mean, Target just lost how many credit card numbers with security codes? Right, right. I, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I definitely get that this obviously needs to be dealt with and we need tighter controls in our open source. I just don't think that, I don't think this is going to be that pivotal moment where everybody reforms. I think this is the beginning. Right, yes, I agree. I, didn't, I, I, yeah. I don't, yeah, this is like the, the shot across the bow. Yeah, I think so. I think this is sort of uh, round one, and there's going to be a lot of, um, I think we're going to see a lot of people capitalize on this kind of stuff. I think this is going to be a new industry that is just, uh, that's one of the craziest things about TechSnap, and is we've been, when we started that show, we sort of started it, well, three years ago, right when the cybersecurity industry came into its next gear. It really yes. kind of went into overdrive and, and, you know, it became a national security and political interest. It became, uh, you know, there's entire rich and huge businesses based on cybersecurity, and it's just been getting bigger and bigger and growing. Uh, and I, I guess that's reflective of the importance of the internet and the technology we all use, but there's definitely, like, this problem where you can you can cry wolf too much with all of this when you have all this momentum and industry and all these buzz terms and people using these buzz terms incorrectly people start to tune it out too and that's you know I, I hate that I, I wish there was an easier way for users to protect themselves and I also wonder if now this maybe I'm just crazy maybe I'm just a nut job and I don't I'm not a developer I just pretend to be one on the internet I wanted to ask you what about what about writing core infrastructure in 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 a, in a language perhaps that maybe makes this kind of thing impossible yeah. or harder? So, so so that's the other thing. A lot of criticism, a lot of discussion has been this is just another huge reason not to use C. Yeah, and that's fair because this issue is simply not possible in a number of languages. Uh, the issue is then you're trading a lot of performance. Now, we got a few emails, or maybe I got them directly, Chris. Folks who were saying they think and. Again, they themselves weren't sure, but according to Google and the Go people, they can get near C performance in Go. And Go obviously doesn't have this kind of issue because you don't do your own memory allocation and all of that. Right. So Go is the one I've heard kicked around, too, because yeah. of that same reason. And I, I wonder if uh, – uh, I wonder if – could that – I mean, I, okay, so let's let's admit that there's probably something that could go wrong using Go, too. But if if it inherently was just safer for humans to use in the sense that they can't quite shoot themselves in the foot as much, isn't that a better – language for a lot of these core infrastructure libraries that entire industries depend on yeah. so i would i would i would backpedal a little on the go go thing though right because okay this particular issue exactly the way that they did it in open ssl is not possible right a i'm sure similar issues are and we just haven't noticed um or, or more importantly let, let, let's let's give the go people and the D people, I think Rust is one that's being mentioned in the chat room, but I, yeah. don't, I, don't, I don't know much about that. Um, let's, just, let's just give it to them. Let's just say, you know what, guys? Even though I think this statement's probably false, these sort of memory issues are, not, are simply impossible in your languages. Don't worry. There's other issues. <laughs> like, you're still going to get hit. Yeah. So I, I'm not sure I would – I mean, certainly – okay, but here's the other side. You're the OpenSSL team. 
you decide you're not going to write your thing in C because you're avoiding this issue and your code is, you know, 10% slower. Now people want you for slowing it down. Yeah, I mean, that's why they did their own custom memory allocator. It was apparently that's, so that's important. That's why they went to these crazy extremes that they went to. Yeah. And I think it's really easy, and I'm trying not to do it, um, but in particular, you know, folks I've seen on the interwebs, it's really easy to Monday morning quarterback this. Yeah, for sure. And and to beat the crap out of them. But frankly, I could not have written OpenSSL if I eat my dreams, right? And I would say that probably 90% of the programmers who listen to Jupyter Broadcasting couldn't touch it either. So, sure, they made a mistake that was stupid in a lot of ways, right? I mean, when you're writing your own memory allocator, I, I'd say in 2014, that's pretty greedy. <laughs> just, just take the performance hit. Yeah. If you're if you're running a system that has that much of a need, then you know there's a lot of things that OpenSSL did that I don't like. First off, it has to support all operating systems. F that. Like I'm serious. No, like that's when you walk into danger in my mind. You can't support everything. Um, but th- that's neither here nor there because Chris, my view is beating up on these guys after the fact doesn't solve the problem. Mm-hmm. That's true. And, you know, OpenSSL wasn't made in 2013. It's old. People are saying it's old in the chat room. We all know it's old. I don't know who wouldn't know that. Maybe it's just time to update it, and maybe it's time that we all were responsible and actually took a greater look at the open source libraries we're using. Instead of using them blindly to get things done, perhaps under bid and under time, and then, you know, taking a crap on the face of the people who wrote these things that are core to our infrastructure. Right, that we've relied on for years. Yeah. how many invoices have you people sent out thanks to the good folks at OpenSSL? Right. Yeah. Ooh, I got a little, ooh, a little bit of heat in here. That's nice, man. No, it's good. It's yeah. right. I mean, how, yeah, exactly. How many invoice sites have you used to, to generate your invoices that use OpenSSL? Yeah. I mean, we're right on the backs of these guys standing on their shoulders. And that's why I kind of wanted to call, I kind of, I kind of want to just call them out and be like, you know, Hey, big companies out there on the internet who have uh, some money to throw around. Uh, you know, Facebook can go drop uh, two hundred million on uh, on like you know an app, and uh, billions on another app, and billions on another app, but they can't throw a few pennies towards the OpenSSL guys. Uh, and I just say, you know, I know, I know that it is you're a public company, and your interest is to maximize profits, and so any extra expenses are extras to you. But maybe you do uh, one less uh, round of a uh, cheesecake in the. Uh, in the um, on, on-site cafeteria for a month, and you send that money to the OpenSSL guys because you owe it to your customers, I think. You owe it to your customers to audit the products that your product depends on. Just It's part of your due diligence. Before you build something that relies on something else, you should audit that something else, especially if the code is available for you to do so. And I just think, I know, it's, I know there's no necessarily profit in it for them, but out of respect for their customers, this is this, I get, I get on the same time, people that have bad password storage management, it also just gets to me. It's like, if I'm your customer, I expect you to take care of me. I don't want to do business with you if you're not doing your due diligence. And I think in this case, that due diligence includes auditing the code and financing the developers. Just my opinion, I know they're never going to do it because it would cost them money and that would be no good. Uh, you know what maybe we could do is maybe we could help people get trained up 
so they could take advantage of some of these opportunities themselves. And our next sponsor, LinuxAcademy.com, can help you do just that. Go to LinuxAcademy.com slash coders, as coders with an S at the end, and you'll save $5 a month on the Linux Academy. This is such an awesome site. I've met the guys who built it from the ground up themselves. They've been working on it for a couple of years now, and now they've really got it flush with content. And not only is it just awesome Linux material, with step-by-step video courses, you get uh, guides in each way, uh, each spot of the way. You get timelines and how long a project is going to take. You can keep track of your progress and switch between courses. You can download the study guides. They have seven-plus Linux distributions, all with the study guide material reflecting those distributions. That's all great, right? But they also have Amazon Web Service courses. So if you want to become an, a, an Amazon Web developer or a sysop over at Amazon Web Services, you can take these courses, step-by-step video guides, and when you get to a spot in the course where you need to do something on the server, they'll actually spin up a VM for you, and which is great. Like, think about this. If you're taking the AWS courses... One of the things that you don't have to worry about is the price of AWS, because this just comes included with Linux Academy. They also have scenario-based training. So when you're taking a course, they'll give you a set of uh, objectives that they help handcraft that give you something to do that by the end of that process, by the end of that scenario, you've actually done something that you would do in the real-world production. Like, that is actual useful information that you could take and then go implement something. They have tons of courses for Linux. They have tons of courses for AWS. They're adding content all the time. They have an OpenStack uh, course that they're working on right now, so if you want to get in on that, they've got Configuring Bind, Apache, the LAMP stack, even setting up a Samba 4 server. If you want to learn how to set up a Samba server and maybe uh, make it an Active Directory, an introduction to VMware, ESXi. How to get a Linux job. How to just master the command line if you want to refresh your Linux command line skills or just get started. They've also got certification courses where you can take these and then you're ready to go out and get certified. This is a serious amount of stuff here. You should go check it out. Go to linuxacademy.com slash coders. You can check out their S3 Essentials and Versioning, the S3 Lifecycle Policy courses, EC2 Instance courses, all of that stuff. You can also learn more about their staff over at linuxacademy.com. They've also got an active community where folks share their test results. They have self-paced labs and it's a really awesome resource with new stuff coming all the time. And the best part is, if you're part of a team, they also have team accounts for groups. So you can get in there and your business can get in there as well. And I'm, I'm, I'm part of a team account right now. It's pretty awesome. So check them out, linuxacademy.com slash coders. New stuff coming all the time. And I think you'll be really, really impressed with the infrastructure they've built around this. Uh, it's it's kind of amazing. When you log in, you get that introduction video and that introduction to what you're going to learn. And then each area of the course, they will give you essentially how long they expect that course to take, that portion of the course. So for me, I like the idea of I could take this and break it down at night. I know tonight I'm going to need about 15 minutes to pass this portion of the course. And then when I'm done, there's quizzes that are made available to just sort of double check if I retained what I actually just learned. And you can keep track of that. And when you log out and then you come back in, it resumes right where you left off. You get check marks along the courseware as you go. And of course, you get that syllabus that you could print out or just have on your computer as a PDF to just sort of thumb through as you're going. And everything's also online on the website. And they also have little audio cues here and there. So go over to linuxacademy.com slash coders to get $5 off your monthly service. I'm really impressed with what these guys have built. And the back-end infrastructure they've been building out just keeps getting cooler and cooler. And they also have, like, you know, they, when you log in, you get your progress. Like, you are this much complete. It kind of it gets you going a little bit. It's like, oh, I can get that number up. I can do it. So there's a little gamification to it as well. linuxacademy.com slash coders. And a big thank you to Linux Academy for sponsoring the Coder Radio program. It's such a cool resource. Um, I, you know, I've been using Linux 
for longer than I want to admit. And I, I have no shame in going in there and brushing up some of my skills. And, and, and just to be honest with you, the fact that you can save 20% on the monthly service, it's just an awesome opportunity. Linuxacademy.com slash coders. Thanks, Linux Academy. That's a great one. Now, uh, Mike, I know deep down, way in your insides, you're a Python guy. You always will be a Python guy, always have been a Python guy, always come back to Python when you're working on a project. And that's why I wanted to give you a heads up over at pyvideo.org, pyvideo.org. PyCon US 2014 videos are posted. Maybe it's just me. I can't help it. I like Python. I know you're not a fan. I know I just said everything I just said was false. But uh, I think this is a great set of videos. They have everything from building an app to uh, data-intensive bio- biology in the cloud using Python. I mean, <laughs> so there's a ton of great resources. And I figured, since Coda Radio will not be live next Monday, because we're pre-recording this week for next week, yeah. you could go watch these videos. In the meantime, I'll have it linked in the show notes. There you go. That's my little pick. That's my tool. I don't, I don't know why you lied to, like, you know, a lot of people at once there, but Okay. Um, you know, uh, last week, uh, just kind of as a closing thought, um, last week we uh, talked about build and, um, mm, build it up, baby. The, uh, John Gruber has a show called the talk show and, uh, this, I don't, I don't generally catch it, but I, I thought, wait, really? What? I thought that got canceled. No, he just did it all. He went off on his own and he's doing it on his own now. Oh, poor Dan Benjamin. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, you know, water under the bridge. Uh, it's way of the future. They, uh, they had, um, not Dan Benjamin, um, John Gruber had Ed Bott on. Now, you know who Ed Bott is, right? I don't think I do off the top of my head. Well, so think of Ed Bott as sort of like Paul Thorat, but he's even, I think, been following the Microsoft beat even longer. He's sort of even more, you know, where Paul Thorat's more of a realist Microsoft follower, Ed Bott's maybe a little more drinking the Microsoft Kool-Aid. I, that might be a mischaracterization, but that's kind of my impression. So to have, you know, sort of, essentially, he's the Gruber of Microsoft. So you have John Gruber, the Gruber of Apple, and you have Edbot. They got together on the talk show, and uh, Gruber was at Build, and they talked about the Build conference. And, and the biggest thing that I pulled away from that episode was how much Microsoft is a company that is in total, total transition right now. Uh, one of the things they said that, like, presenters up on stage that were demoing stuff some of them right. were demoing on Macs some of them were demoing on Windows using Chrome some of them had iOS Android devices like there was it wasn't your typical Microsoft conference where everybody's running the latest Windows everybody's demoing everything inside of Internet Explorer we're only talking about how it works with Windows it was this is truly like a cross platform world now and it seems like their impressions, both of them, walked away thinking Microsoft is being real here. They're like they're no longer denying that Windows is the king. Like they're 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 accepting the fact that Windows will not be running on the majority of devices down the road that consumers are using. And I think it was pretty interesting to as somebody who's followed Microsoft forever, um, and you know they've been in in they live in you know everybody works here. In my I've got friends there. Like it's it's something that I, it's a company that I have watched go through this massive transition over the last few years and it, i i almost wonder if they are coming on the out of it and i don't want to be i don't want to be smoking the uh Sachi nadella uh crack pipe here but i almost feel like this build sort of was the landmarker in the in the road that said this build marks sort of the new microsoft in the sense of how we approach the marketplace how we approach product compatibility and how we talk about those things and that to me was the even just the way they talked about it was sort of the biggest change Do you, are you sensing that 
I would say that the Build Conference was very, very impressive. Um, there are still some questions in my mind, such as what is the fate going to be of WinRT? Windows Phone, although they're doing a little better. Uh, I would say that I, I, after watching it, felt more positive on them than I had previous to watching it. Yeah, I guess maybe that's probably because yeah, I've gone from I've, a, I've yeah. gone from a, I'm come from I'm coming from a pretty negative place. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been reading a lot of the coverage. I mean, remember I was very positive on on yes. for a while before eight shipped. Yes, <laughs> and, and I, I could have lit that cache and burned it myself, but I decided to waste it on trying to develop stuff for Windows Eight. So, um, I cautiously optimistic. How about that? Yeah, I I, I agree. I mean, they have. Yeah. Um, you know they have to basically see themselves in a different in a different way now, and that's a really hard thing. But you know, I mean, I'm very, we're about I'm very to see. Optim- it. Yeah, I'm very optimistic on Azure and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, that seemed to be my takeaway from it too. Azure is is it's really going to be about getting everybody in Azure. Azure is the new Windows. It's that's the platform. That's the base platform they want to get everybody to write for. Um, you know, they they had Gruber doing a demo video for his iOS app. That runs the backend infrastructure runs on a Linux box on Azure, and yeah. the, the keynote video at Build is Mac guy John Gruber talking about his iOS app running on a Linux machine. That's to me that's that's a different Microsoft. That's a pretty different Microsoft. That's a very different Microsoft. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, uh, I, I I like it. I'm just very. I think I'm, I'm I'm skeptical. Is what it is. Is I feel like I've been sung this song a few times. And no, <laughs> you know, it's never really quite panned out. But maybe this time, I, I guess I feel like there's a potential. It's different. So, yeah, my thing has always been with them. I think the technology makes a lot of sense at Microsoft, but it's that weird Game of Thrones style politicking that yeah. goes on. I I was told Chase told me they dropped stack ranking. They, a long time ago. That's not news. Oh, okay. Oh, I guess That's I didn't catch that. Yeah, I uh, I actually don't know if that was a great idea. Um, I feel like they could use some compulsory firings. Oh, yeah. Well, I, the problem is the people that need to be compulsorily fired are the middleman oh, people. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not the workers. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. That was definitely my impression any time I've spent down there. It was it was a huge crowd um, of middle management that sort of just slowed the whole works down. I, I know yeah. I shared my story that I had to get interviewed by, like, three different managers for a group of six. It was just crazy. I mean, I want to be be clear i you know i've worked at reps for microsoft um had various experiences interacting with microsoft they're actually not bad to work with as a developer in fact they're a lot better than a lot of other companies the issue is it takes a long time for them to make a decision and for a smaller company who's maybe a little more steeped in a different culture it, it feels weird right if it, it feels weird to have a meeting about a meeting Mm-hmm. I, yes. think I, would, I think I would leave it at that. Yes. Yeah. 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 Very good, Mr. Dominic. Well, uh, I think uh, unless there's anything else you want to cover, we'll wrap it up right there at that point. That, that's a wrap. Okay. Well, very good. We'd love to hear your thoughts on any of this. So go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click that contact link, and choose Coda Radio from the drop down. And don't forget, Coda Radio, except for next Monday, is live at jblive.tv, Mondays, 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern. We'd love to get your contact also in the subreddit, codaradio.reddit.com. You can also submit topic ideas, discussion pieces over there. All that stuff is really great. We'd love to get it. So send it in to us. All right, everyone. Well, thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of Coda Radio. We'll see you right back here next week.